Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, August 3rd, 2011. We're going to do our light edition today. I I need a break from the Eric Dykstra stuff. (laughs) Funny thing, I've got more that I could bring to bear, but I'm not going to do it today or tomorrow. I'm going to take a couple of days break from Eric Dykstra. Pray for those folks in Elk River, man. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is just no shortage of crazy things being said about God, and, uh, well, we do the politically incorrect thing. We name names. We let you hear the heresies direct from the heretic's mouth. We do the... We do the biblical comparative work and tell you why what they're saying really isn't what God's Word says. And, uh, oh, it's just a mess. But uh, one of the things we like to do here, though, is something a little bit positive. Our light editions of Fighting for the Faith are dedicated to singularly singular topics. And many times they're good lectures that will help you uh, understand what the Christian faith teaches and why it's true. And uh, and, and so, uh, you know, when I listen to the White Horse Inn, I, I, they, they've had a tagline that they've had for, you know, 20-something years now. <laughs> I was in college, a student of Dr. Rosenblatt's when they started the White Horse Inn. <laughs> it just takes me way back. But uh, the, the tagline is uh, knowing what you believe and why you believe it. The thing is, is that um, I, I, I don't, I'm not taking Michael Horton to task, but uh, that doesn't work anymore. And the reason why it doesn't work is because people in their own churches aren't being taught the Christian faith. So it's it really should be what the Christian faith has taught and confessed from the beginning and why it's true. You may or may not believe it even if you're going to church. So it's just one of those weird things. Anyway, uh, today we're going to continue uh, listening to the lectures of uh, the past, uh, uh, Reverend Charles St. Ange of Memorial Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas. We're going to be listening to one, one lecture today. And uh, the name of the lecture is, Did Jesus Really Rise from the Dead? Did Jesus Really Rise from the Dead? This is a perennial apologetics question. And uh, and uh, listen, even if you think you know the answer to this and why he, you can say, you can, I know why he rose from the dead and I can defend it, it's always good to review the basics. We never get past the basics. Never, 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 never. In fact, one of the things that uh, I do on a daily basis is uh, I, part of my devotional reading involves Luther's small catechism, which is a summary of the, just the basic, basic, basic basics of the uh, Christian faith. You never get past that. Just you never do. Anyway, so without any further ado, here is the Reverend Charles Saint Ange of Memorial Lutheran Church. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? All right. Welcome back to uh, Prepared to Defend Your Faith. We're moving on this week to talk about the single most controversial, but at the same time most significant event in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, which is his resurrection from the dead. Um, Before we launch into our discussion about that, let's just have a quick moment of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, this Easter season we have heard uh, many accounts of Jesus appearing to the disciples after they had seen the empty tomb. We ask, Heavenly Father, that we might by your Holy Spirit trust that they are faithful eyewitnesses of these things and thereby come to place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as they did, as our Lord and Savior 
the one who has forgiven our sins, the one who has defeated the devil, and the one who has promised us everlasting life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Convincing proof or idle tale. That's what I called this one. Um, by the way, does anybody know who first called uh, the report of Jesus' resurrection from the dead an idle tale? Mike? The twelve disciples, or more accurately, the men. The men who were left in the city. It was the women who had gone to see uh, and prepare the body of Jesus for final burial, who went to the tomb and found it empty, who came back uh, and on their way back to Jesus saw the Lord, who then reported um, that he was in fact alive, and the immediate reaction of the disciples was that this seemed to them an idle tale. You know where that's recorded? For bonus points? Not by Matthew. You got to think through each of the Gospels has a particular emphasis, and one of the Gospels particularly emphasizes um, the women who were involved in Jesus' ministry. Does anybody know what that Gospel is? No. No. Okay, it's not Matthew, it's not Mark, it's not John. We're losing <laughs> Gospels here. It's not Thomas, it's Luke. Yes, Luke's Gospel. And so it's in Luke's Gospel. Um, Luke spends the most amount of time, I think, of all the Gospels in uh, recording Jesus' physical appearances after his death. Last week and the week before, I, I said we were going to mostly each week present the counter-argument for the thing we're going to discuss, the reason why most people have a problem with it. We're not going to really bother with that that much this week. I think you can figure out for yourselves what the big problem is with the resurrection. Does anybody want to put it in words? Has anybody ever talked to an atheist or agnostic or a friend who's not a Christian, maybe of another religion, and, and talked to them about Easter and what their reaction was? Yeah, so somebody uh, from, from another faith tradition, um, and they're the founders of, of well, basically, if, you, if your religion has a founder, not all religions do, um, those founders are all dead. They died and they stayed dead. Uh, Muhammad died and stayed dead. Um, the Buddha, the original teacher, died and stayed dead. Um, we alone are the religion that goes around with this nutty idea that um, our founder um, did indeed die, in fact, a particularly gruesome public death, unlike a lot of other people who died maybe in private or of old age, um, and then a few days later was alive. The earliest written record we have of the Easter message is actually not probably, we don't know this for certain, but probably the Gospels. It's likely what's written in Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth in chapter 15, where Paul, um, and he does this in a couple places in Corinth, delivers what sounds and has the, the formula formation of a creed. Paul says, I deliver to you what was first delivered to me, which is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he rose again from the dead, that he appeared first to Cephas, then to James, then to the twelve, and then to more than 500 Christian believers, most of whom, Paul writes, are still alive. In other words, they're accessible to you. You can go talk to them. Um, and then Paul says, last of all, they appeared to me as one who was kind of born at the wrong time or in an unusual time. And later in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul pins his ministry on the Easter account. He says, if this did not happen, if, 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 if Jesus in fact has somehow or the devil managed to delude us all so that all 500 of the people who've seen him, plus Cephas, Peter, Simon, and James, and me, are somehow not in our right mind, then Paul writes this, we are of all people most to be pitied. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, what Paul's saying is, if Jesus really did die on the cross, and then that was the end of it, then we Christians, I, I mean, are really stupid. <laughs> Why are we doing this? Why are we going out there? Now, there have been many modern attempts 
to construct a Christianity apart from Easter. When I was in college, and I was in a, a very liberal Mennonite college, um, I remember one of my classmates writing an essay saying, if Jesus had not been raised, ought we still be Christian? And his thesis was yes. Com complete contradiction to Paul. And he made a case for a resurrectionless, Easterless Christianity. That Jesus still, you know, said some nice things about being nice to people and trying to be good. But that was never what Paul preached what Christianity was all about. It was not about being nice. That was a corollary. It was an after effect. The main event was that we can sacrifice our lives in this world for the sake of our neighbors because we will yet live. We in our day and age tend to be much bigger on the judgment idea. And don't we need to go out there and tell the people that are not Christian that they're going to hell? You know, that message is never present in the epistles. It's not that it's not true, but it's not the main message. The main message of the apostles is to proclaim victory over sin, death, and the devil in Christ. And let the chips fall where they may, because we have no control over what happens with that message. God has simply told us, go out and proclaim the euangelion. The euangelion is the good news. The gospel. And euangelion was a word used in Greek for a victory announcement. If your city sent out troops to fight against somebody else, you didn't have internet. You didn't have text messages. You didn't have reports every second from the front saying, ooh, things went really well this hour. Uh, we killed more of them than they killed of us, so things seem to be going well. What happened is, is the battle got fought, and then somebody got picked to run back to the hometown and declare... The euangelion, if they won. That was the technical term that was used. They declared the victory. Over there, victory has now occurred, and therefore we who are over here can party. And that is the reason why the apostles are told to go out and preach this victory announcement. And the victory is over sin, death, and the devil. Not over all the people that won't believe. Because we don't know who's going to believe. We don't even know until we won't know until the next life who's going to be there standing beside us. There are going to be people with us that we didn't expect to see. There are going to be people that we thought we might see who won't be there. But that we're going to get to in a minute. Here's the thing: a lot of people will will will, will talk about the resurrection. We'll talk about Paul's message. And people will say, well, that, you know, that makes sense because 2,000 years ago, again, 2,000 years ago, people were stupid. They didn't know any better. Um, people rose from the dead all the time. People believed in ghosts. They believed in a life in the hereafter. And so this was no big deal, right? The apostles are going out there saying, yeah, our founder was crucified three days later. His tomb was empty, and we saw him appear to us bodily. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, that sort of thing happens. No. Never in, in the recorded history of the world do we have a, a written history of a people who are so incredulous that they are not aware that death is the end. N.T. Wright, who wrote one of the definitive now texts on the Easter event, said, Christianity was born into a world where its central claim was known to be false. Now, what did he mean by that? It means the same thing we mean today in the 21st century. You go out and tell people, that somebody who died three days later appeared to you bodily from the dead and his tomb is empty, the immediate assumption is not, oh, he must have been raised from the dead. The immediate assumption is what? Something really weird's going on. Either he really wasn't dead and he clawed his way out of the coffin, or um, somebody's pulling a fast one. We have never had a time in recorded history where people just assumed that resurrections happened. What makes resurrection events so controversial? Um, it, it's controversial because it doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room for people to say, well, Christianity is just one path among many. What did I say about the founders of all these other religions? They died and they stayed dead. Now, here we are going around saying our founder, within history, lived, was crucified sub Pontio Pilatus, right? Under Pontius Pilate. We talked about this last week. We established last week Jesus is a historical person. And now we go and say, and he is still alive. He rose from the dead. 
that doesn't leave a lot of room for saying, well, you know, you can take it or leave it. As um, I think it's the movie A Man for All Seasons, Catherine of, of Aragorn says, in a world where dead carpenters rise from the dead, anything is possible. Um, there was a commercial that a church in uh, California wanted to have played in a movie theater, um, and I'm just going to play it for you now. The Easter event um, is, is a unique event in history, and therefore, if you're going to go out and proclaim that, you're sort of saying to everybody else that they have to pay attention to what you say. Um, and so it was deemed too controversial to show in the movie theaters. Let's back up. Yeah, I know. Yeah, considering what's shown in our movie theaters now. Um, as long as you kept it as just a, you know, a nice story, it's okay. But the minute you claim it's a historical event, that's when it becomes problematic. Now, here's why. Let, let's back up a little bit. Um, actually, to, to the decades and the centuries before the Easter event. And talk about what Second Temple Judaism taught about life after death. Okay, so let's talk about the Jews first. Second Temple Judaism means we're talking about the time after the exile, which happened in the 500s, when the Jews were allowed under the Persians to return back to the Promised Land and rebuild Jerusalem and the Temple. It's what we call it Second Temple Judaism as opposed to the First Temple, built under Solomon that was destroyed by the Babylonians or the Iraqis. Um, ask the Iraqis. Then the, then the Iranians freed the Jews and allowed them to go home. Um, history is very strange. Now Iran wants to destroy Israel, but Iraq is kind of okay. And, um, the Pharisees, one of the groups we hear a lot about in the Gospels, and I'm going to tell you why, actually believed in a resurrection from the dead. They actually believed in a spiritual life. Um, they believed in, in the message of the prophets in the Old Testament. Um, and so Jesus, I think, naturally spends most of his time hanging around with them because uh, they're worth talking to, even if they don't get it. They're actually sort of on the same page. They sort of can understand where Jesus is coming from. Now, this is what the Pharisees taught about the resurrection, and this still is held by most conservative Jews and, and Orthodox Jews to this day, that when Israel is finally restored to its land and Messiah comes and enables that to happen, there will be a resurrection of all the faithful who have died beforehand so that they can participate in this new life in the new Israel. Um, it, doesn't seem, it didn't seem fair to them that the people who had struggled and had died prior to the fulfillment of all things should stay dead. It seemed more in keeping with God's nature that he would return them to life. But that life was a physical life in this world, in a real piece of real estate, living a real life. Okay, so they believed in a resurrection of the body. And though they did believe that there was a soul or a spirit that survived after death, um, that was only the guarantee that you would be raised bodily from the dead at the consummation of all things when, when, Israel, when the land is restored to Israel. Now that might help you understand a lot of the Gospels would help you understand maybe the interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees, would help you inter understand um, things like the disciples coming to Jesus and say, when will be the restoration of all things, and when will Israel be restored? This is what they're talking about. It's like, well, when you know, are all the dead going to be raised, and we're going to be living in peace under our own leadership? That was Second Temple Judaism. Um, the Sadducees, another group within Second Temple Judaism, did not believe in a resurrection. This life is it, okay? And our calling before God is to live this life as faithful Jews, um, to participate in the rituals of temple, and, um, and, and that's it. They stuck to the first five books of Moses. They really didn't have no truck with the prophets. You know, they didn't consider that reliable. We have the five books of Moses. Let's stick with Moses. Um, one of the reasons they didn't like the Pharisees running around talking about this resurrection all the time, is that believing in a resurrection leads you to take foolish risks. 
leads you to sacrifice, right? Because, you know, well, okay, so I die in this world. Now, obviously the world was not Jewish back then. In fact, the world uh, outside of Palestine was heavily influenced by Greek philosophy and thought. One of the great thinkers of the ancient Greek world was Homer. And by reading the Odyssey and the Iliad, and we can get sort of a picture of what Homer and his time period thought about life after death. Um, Homer seems to, to have thought that life was primarily physical, although you do have a soul that survives death. But that soul is, is a mere shadow of real life. You really don't, um, you're not really looking forward to death and what's going to happen to your soul. Um, for lack of a better word, the afterlife is sort of hellish. It's not a place you really want to be. All the descriptions of the underworld leave you kind of thinking, you know, Ugh, who wants to live there? Why have you left the light of the sun and come here to behold the dead and the place where there is no joy? That's what one of the members of the underworld says to, I can't remember who it is that goes down to visit the underworld. But he's like, what, what are you doing here? Why, why do you want to come down to this place? So life was the best thing. Even though your soul survived death, it wasn't something that you particularly looked forward to under that ancient kind of Greek mode of thinking. This thing kind of changes around with Plato. Not Plato that you play with. But. <laughs> Olivia is just learning about Plato in first grade. Classical education, you know, they've covered all this stuff. And, and, and my, my, my mnemonic for her is I always say, he's, he's the philosopher you'd like to eat off of. And she goes, Plato, every time she gets it. Um, for Plato, life was not primarily physical. It was primarily spiritual. And the dead are free. They are free from the shackles that life has imposed upon us in this world. Um, Plato was the original Yoda. I mean, remember in the old Star Wars movies where Yoda talks to Luke about the Force and how the universe binds together? And he's like, you know, numinous creatures are we, not this crude matter. And he pulls at his body. You know, we, the, the body is not who we are. The Force is who we are. The spirit is who we are. The soul is what we are. And so death was something not to dread, but to look forward to. Because when your body dies, your spirit is free to go to, essentially, heaven. Freed from their chains, from that prison house, the body, for what you call life is in fact death. That's what Cicero wrote. Um, disembodied spirits arise to the heavens to join in eternal converse with one another. You get to meet Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and have these long philosophical discussions with them. Now, of all these pictures of the afterlife, Second Temple Judaism, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Homer and the ancient Greeks, Plato, and they're getting into the modern, modern, I mean 400s, 300s Greek thought, which of these is closer to the standard American imagination of what the afterlife really is all about? Yeah, I, how many of you would think Plato sort of sounds like, well, yeah, that's what most Americans believe? I'm not going to ask you what you believe. I'm just going to ask what, what your friends and neighbors believe, right? You know, I have this friend, Pastor, who thinks that. We always love those questions. Well, it's, and it's always changed. That's the other reason I showed this. Ideas of the afterlife have always been in flux, they've always changed. But none of these beliefs are anchored in what? Except maybe the Jews. No, they're all anchored in faith. But none of them are anchored in what? Yeah, or any kind of reality, right? Well, how do you know, Plato, that you have an eternal spirit that goes to live up in heaven? Well, I don't know. It seems nice. Well, actually, I mean, he did have a logical sort of proof for why he thinks that it is. But, but there was not anchored in history. There was no tangible evidence for it that he could point to and say, I know this will happen because we can look over here and see this event. The same even with the Jews. They had the promise of the resurrection. You can read about it in the prophets, whereas there's this beginning of this idea, especially with Daniel and Ezekiel, that the dead will rise. But there's still, you know, not necessarily evidence. You have the prophets raise, you know, two or three of these people who've fallen asleep from the dead. Ezekiel and Elijah both. Or not, uh, not Ezekiel, Elijah and Elisha both. 
But this isn't like a you know a, an event that everybody has access to. Well, here's the thing. Nobody, nobody, Greek or Jew, believed in the resurrection in this present age. That right now, like in our modern world, somebody who died would be resurrected from the grave. Now, the Jews believe on the last day, right? This will happen. The perfect example of that is Mary and Martha in John chapter 11. Lazarus has died. Jesus finally goes to visit them. And Jesus, you know, does this big speech about, you know, your, your brother will rise, right? You, you know this, right? And Mary's like, well, yeah, I know he'll rise again on the last day when Israel is restored and Messiah comes. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And Mary and Martha are like still, I think I preached about this a few weeks ago. They have this picture of, well, yeah, on the last day in some future world, the dead are going to raise. But then they actually come to the tomb of Lazarus and Jesus is like, roll away the stone. And Martha's like, what? Roll I mean, he's going to smell real bad. He's decaying in the grave. I mean, because she's not thinking of the idea of a modern resurrection now. However, I, I do have great sympathy for that idea. Um, that to, to bifurcate the resurrection, well, that was a tough thing to explain. It was a tough thing to understand that th this whole first coming, second coming idea. Um, now we go back and we're used to reading in the Old Testament. We can see the first and second coming and the way, the way that they sort of, um, that, that God is kind of um, pre-resurrectioning the, the resurrection life, that it's, it's entered into the world ahead of schedule. But that is hard if you've not grown up with reading the, the Old Testament that way, the Hebrew Scriptures, to see that. And, it, and that is where we have to say, well, um, you know, uh, I can understand that it's hard to see, but Easter. Well, what do we do with this? I, I mean, it obviously happened. The resurrection broke in ahead of schedule. And so what are we going to do with this? And there, I think we do have to go back and say, did the resurrection break in ahead of schedule and provide the most convincing arguments we can that it did? Okay, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. Because only good theology leads people to heaven. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning, sir. Can I help you? Yes. Do you have a copy of 30 Days in the Desert to Learn Your Purpose and to Cast the Vision to the Ignorant Masses by S. Furtick QWZ? Uh, well, I don't know the book, sir. Ah, uh, never mind. Never mind. How about 101 Ways to Build a Mega Church and Make Big Bucks? I... Well, some American gentleman whose name eludes me at the moment. I believe his last name rhymes with Shin. Uh, no, well, we haven't gotten in stock, sir. <sighs> oh, well, not to worry, not to worry. Can you help me with the screw tape letters? Ah, yes. C.S. Lewis. No. I beg your pardon? No, Harold Wapcat. I think you'll find C.S. Lewis wrote the screw tape letters, sir. No, no, Lewis wrote the screw tape letters with one C. This is the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. The screw tape letters with two C's. Yes, I should have said that. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. Hmm, funny, you've got a lot of books here. Yes, we do, but we don't have the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. Hmm, pity. It's more thorough than Lewis's. More thorough? Yes, I, I wonder if it might be worth looking through all of your screw tape letterses. No, sir, all of our screw tape letterses have one C. Are you sh quite sure? Quite. Hmm, not worth just looking. Definitely not. 
All right. How about the Great Divorce? Yes, well, we have that. That's G R A T E Divorce, but also by Harold Wapcat. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. We don't have anything by Harold Wapcat. Actually, he's not very popular. Not the problem of pain. That's P R O L P R O A B L U M. No. The Chronicles of Narnia with a K. No. How about Out of the Violent Planet? Definitely not. Sorry to trouble you. Not at all. Good morning. Good morning. Oh! Yes. I, I wonder if you might have a copy of Perilous Landra. No, as I said before, we're right out of Harold Wapcat. No, not Harold Wapcat. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Yes. You mean Paralandra? No, Perilous Landra by C.S. Lewis. That's Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian. No, well, we don't have Perilous Landra by C.S. Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian, and perhaps to save time, I should add that we don't have Dandy Landra by C.S. Lewis or the penultimate battle by Clive Staples' Chewbacca, or even Out of the Silent but Deadly Planet by B.S. Lewis with four eyes and a silent Q. What a pity. That's my favorite. Why don't you try Zondervan? I, I did. They sent me here. Did they? I, I wonder. Oh, do go on, please. Yes, I-, I wonder if you might have the amazing adventures of Pastor Perry Noble and his intrepid spaniel Stig amongst the giant purpose-driven pygmies of Beckles. Volume 8. No. Don't have that funny. Got a lot of books here. Well, I mustn't keep you standing here. Thank you. Oh, well, do you have... No, no, we haven't. No, we haven't. But, 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 Sorry, but, but, it's one o'clock. We're closing for lunch. I, I saw it. I saw it. What? What? I, I saw it over there. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Yes. B-O-D-I-E-S. Yes. M-A-Y-E-R. Yes. Yes, well, we do have that, as a matter of fact. The expurgative version. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that. The expurgated version. The expurgated version of Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Mayer? The one without the Lutherans. The, the one without the Lutherans? They've all got the Lutherans. It's a standard religious body. The Lutherans are in all the books. Well, I don't like them. They baptize infants. All right, I'll remove it. Any other religious bodies you don't like? I don't like the Presbyterians. Ah, the Presbyterians, right. Presbyterians. There you are. Any others you don't like? Any others? The Methodists. The Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists. Ah, oh, yeah, they are. There you are. No Lutherans, no Presbyterians, no Methodists. There's your book. I can't buy that. It's torn. <laughs> I-, I wonder if you have... Um... No, go on. Ask me anything. You've got lots of book here. You know, it's a bookshop. How about Osteen brushes his teeth? No, no, we don't have that one. Funny. Uh, the Gospel According to Rob Bell. No, no, no. Try me again. Uh, I know. Uh, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. No, no, no. What, what, what? what? Yeah, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. Martin Chemnitz is two natures. Yes! We got it! I see it somewhere! Yes! I found it here! Got it! Yes! Here we are! Martin Chemnitz's Two Natures in Christ! There's your book! Now buy it! I don't have enough money. I'll take a deposit! I, I don't have any money! I'll take a check! I don't have a checkbook! I got a blank one! I don't have a bank account! Right! I'll buy it for you! There we are! There's change! There's some money for a taxi on the wait, way home! There's wait! Your book. Wait! Wait! What? 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 I can't read! You can't! Read. Right? Sit down. Sit down. Sit, sit. Are you sitting comfortably? Right. Chapter 1. Because the person of the incarnate Christ is made up of two natures, the divine and the human, united into one hypostasis, there follows from this a communion of attributes. Chris Roseboro here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says, Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com. 
Join our crew today and thank you for your support. We are back. Warning, the liberal denominations in the visible church that claim that Jesus didn't rise bodily, uh, well, they'd be lying to you, and the Jesus they believe in, well, isn't the biblical Jesus, and he can't save you. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and send it to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 okay here's the balance of um, the lecture on did jesus really rise from the dead by pastor charles saint ange of memorial lutheran church in houston texas here we go I've talked several times about N.T. Wright's book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. If you want the definitive text, I'm, I'm telling you, this, this has got it all. Um, N.T. Wright is uh, the former bishop of Durham, but before that, he was um, an eminent scholar of the New Testament. Um, he is still considered one of the foremost scholars of the New Testament in the world today. So much so that he actually just last year left his post as bishop of Durham to become head of uh, biblical studies at St. Andrews University. If you're not familiar with St. Andrews, they still have one of the leading theological schools in the world. Um, some of my professors were trained at St. Andrews, actually, ironically, in the ELCA and in the Missouri Synod. Um, so you can go either way with what you learn at St. Andrews. Um, but but um, there are still some very conservative biblical scholars there. Um, N.T. Wright, um, interestingly, is, is a perfect picture of apologetics. Now, now before you get too nervous here, uh, keep in mind, uh, N.T. Wright's early works on the resurrection of Jesus, his early apologetic works, they're brilliant. They're fantastic. And, uh, and there's nothing wrong with them. Uh, the problem with N.T. Wright is his later formulations regarding uh, you know, justification and his new perspectives on Paul. As a result of it, uh, um, N.T. Wright has become a dangerous teacher. So uh, here, uh, Pastor St. Ange is embracing uh, N.T. Wright's earlier work, uh, on, you know, and apologetic works on the resurrection, which are worth picking up, reading, and, uh, and using his arguments. They're fantastic. Uh, as far as his theology of, uh, of, uh, of imputation and the new perspectives on Paul, that's just flat out, you know, well, it's, it's heresy, it's wrong, it's not correct. Remember at the very beginning we talked about 1 Peter 3.15, which is our guiding verse, to always give a reason for the hope we have within us, but to do it with gentleness and respect? That's N.T. Wright. And he um, made a real name for himself in the 90s, showing up to Jesus Seminar meetings. How many of you remember the Jesus Seminar? These were the, you know, black ball, Jesus really said it, gray ball, he might have said it, pink ball, he probably didn't say it, red ball, he definitely didn't say it, sort of thing, and they rewrote the entire Gospels, say what Jesus did and didn't do. Um, N.T. Wright would show up at these meetings, who actually takes the Gospels as, as the Word of God, and he'd say, hey guys, and they're all like, oh crap, <laughs> because he would keep them honest. He would keep them honest, and he would just do it, again, with gentleness and respect. And what could they do? He is an eminent scholar in New Testament studies. They couldn't just avoid him. Now, I found a great little clip on the Internet, because we can't go over his whole book, um, but this sort of gives you a flavor of one of his passions, which happens to be the defense of the resurrection. Three, two, one. The resurrection of Jesus took everybody by surprise. The disciples weren't expecting it. They knew perfectly well if you followed somebody who you thought was the Messiah and he got killed, then that was it. We know of at least a dozen other messianic or prophetic movements within the hundred years either side of Jesus. They routinely ended with the death of the founder. Um, and if, they, if the movement wanted to continue, they didn't say, oh, he's been raised from the dead. They said, let's find his brother or his cousin or somebody who can carry on this movement. We can see how those Jewish groups 
did that. This one did it differently. They had James, the brother of Jesus, as this great leader in the early church. Nobody said James was the Messiah. They said Jesus was the Messiah. Why? He's dead. He, they, they got him. Didn't you realize they crucified him? No, he was raised from the dead. The only way you can explain why Christianity began and why it took the very precise shape it was is, let's say it cautiously, first, they really did believe he was bodily raised from the dead. And then if you take the second question and say, why would they believe that? You can go through all the theories that they found themselves forgiven, that they had a fresh sense of the presence of God, that this was cognitive dissonance, etc. And you bring all those theories to the actual facts that we know on the ground from the first century. They just don't fit. The only way you can explain the rise of the early Christian belief that Jesus was raised is that there really was an empty tomb. They really did meet Jesus alive again in a transformed body, and the thing makes sense. Of course, when I wrote a big book on this, my philosophy tutor from Oxford, who was an atheist, um, uh, read it, and he said, great book. You really make the argument. He said, I simply choose to believe that there must be some other explanation, even though I don't know what it was. I said, fine, that's as far as I can take you. I can't bully you into saying, therefore, you must believe, because to do that requires a change of worldview. But once you change the worldview and say, maybe there really is a creator God, and maybe this creator God really is sorting out this sad old world at last, then everything else makes sense in a way that it doesn't with any other possibility. Now, N.T. Wright, this is the argument he makes at the end of his book, and he sort of alluded to it in this uh, little segment. How did Christianity begin? This is the big question that you have to ask as a historical scholar. Um, one day, you had all the religions of the Mediterranean world. You had Jews in different places. You had Roman, the Roman pantheon, the Greek pantheon. You had the upper crust of Roman society who were like, yeah, Jupiter, yeah, yeah. I make the sacrifice because it's what's expected of me, but I don't really know what happens. And I think that was the average Roman citizen. I don't think they had a particular, you know, real commitment beat on things. Um, they practiced the Roman, you know, obeisance to the Roman pantheon because it was there, and that's what you did as a good Roman citizen. Suddenly, suddenly, as we learned last week, within two or three decades uh, of this man, Jesus of Nazareth, living in Palestine, there is a brand new religion spreading like wildfire all around the Mediterranean seas, north coast and south coast. And it is centered on this proclamation that this Jewish rabbi from the Middle East is, in fact, the incarnate Son of God. You, ha you have to ask the question, how do you get there? This is the question you ask of every religion, like Islam. How did Islam take root? Um, Christianity had no army. It had no military power. It had no political sway. These, these are the reasons, by the way, why Islam spread so quickly. It had incredible political power. It had a strong military backing. And it, it developed a sense of cohesiveness among the Arabic tribes that was not there before, that they came together with a sense of nationalistic purpose. And it allowed them to sort of militaristically and politically expand into a very weak Roman Empire. That is not what happened with Christianity. In fact, every time the Romans tried to kill the Christians, they didn't resist, they let it happen, and they kept growing. <laughs> For every Christian pastor they executed, the church continued to grow. Why? Well, the church was proclaiming that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, even though he died on an executioner's cross under Pontius Pilatus, was in fact alive. Now, there are two conditions that are necessary, but in and of themselves not sufficient to create this Easter belief, according to N.T. Wright. And he's tried to puzzle this out. What Paul Meyer did for the crucifixion, or for the historical existence of Jesus in the empty tomb, N.T. Wright sort of expands and does for Easter. Number one, there had to be an empty tomb. If you knew there was the body in the tomb, okay, then if you sense that Jesus was appearing to you, for example, the two disciples walking to Emmaus, that Jesus joins them on the road, and they realize it's Jesus. They're like, well, we know that we had this sense of the presence of Jesus, or somebody joined us who wasn't actually Jesus, but he sounded like Jesus. We know this because the body is still in the tomb. 
Okay, if there's a body in the tomb, it sort of undercuts the appearances. Remember, these disciples are not stupid. You can't get away with that argument. They know the dead don't rise. They know that. They're, they're like you. They know that, you know, if you, if you bury your relative in the cemetery and you go there three days later and the casket is, is on the ground, open, and there's no body in there, your immediate jump is not, my friend has risen from the dead. Your immediate jump is somebody stole his body or her body. But secondly, um, if, you have the, if, you, um, if you have an empty tomb, but you do not have appearances, what's going to be your natural assumption again? The body's been stolen. I mean, it's the natural leap. But if you have both an empty tomb and bodily appearances, you have sufficient conditions for people to come together and say, he is risen, he is risen indeed. Now, Paul Meyer, uh, who's one of our vice presidents of the Missouri Synod, just retired from Western Michigan uh, University, where he taught ancient history, um, has written a lot about the historical existence of Jesus, his crucifixion, and his resurrection from the dead. And in the 70s, wrote what is still considered the definitive paper demonstrating that on the basis of historical study, if we, if we apply the same methods to Jesus' life and death that we would to any other ancient figure at the same time, we would have to come to the conclusion, at a minimum, that the tomb is empty. If all the evidence is weighed carefully and fairly, it is indeed justifiable, according to the canons of historical research, to conclude that the sepulcher of Joseph of Arimathea, in which Jesus was buried, was actually empty on the morning of the first Easter, and no shred of evidence has yet been discovered in literary sources epigraphy, or archaeology that would dispute this statement. Dr. Meyer put that out there in the 70s to the rest of the world that engages in historical studies. Not the Jesus Seminar people and people who really don't have any background in history. But he put it out there for the historical, the historical academic community and said, I want you to you know, attack my argument. Have I made the case or not? And interestingly, he had a professor from a university in Tel Aviv, a professor of Jewish studies, who wrote him back and said, I, I think I have to concede your point. The tomb was empty. There's no other explanation uh, based on historical sources for what was going on than to say the tomb was empty. So, of course, Dr. Meyer's next question to him was what? What happened to the body? And he happened to subscribe to what's called the swoon theory. Does anybody know what the swoon theory was? It was popular for a while. That Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. That for once, the Roman, the Roman centurions screwed up. The first time in history, they took a body off the cross that wasn't dead. And in the cool of the tomb, Jesus revived. Covered with scars and, and, and blood and, and massive blood loss and everything. And staggers out of the tomb on Easter morning. And everybody says, oh, he's been resurrected from the dead. Um... But the professor went on to say, I'm writing this book about Jesus and the Jewish faith. I'd like to include your argument for the empty tomb. I'm going to write what I think happened, why the tomb was empty. Would you like to write the Christian explanation for what happened? And he did. So here he is with this, this Jewish textbook that was used in Israel and some of the universities where Dr. Meyer has this response to why Christians believe Jesus was in fact raised from the dead. Well, what are some of the other arguments? Well, perhaps these are the ones these are the ones that have come up. Peter and John went to the wrong tomb. And besides, the women are stupid. I was like, this feminist scholars make these arguments. Women are stupid. They didn't went to the wrong tomb. Like, wait a minute. Aren't you a feminist? Aren't you supposed to argue that the women were smarter than the men? But in, when it comes to Christianity, women aren't as good as men, and women are stupider than men, because feminists are more interested in arguing for the stupidity of women than in saying that Jesus actually rose. How sad is that? I mean, to me, that's very distressing. And that's going to come up again when we talk about the Gospel of Thomas. The other argument is that the body was stolen. And there you got to ask the question, who would have had the courage? Who would have gone to steal the body? You've got Roman guards posted outside this tomb. You've got, you know, all the political leadership breathing threats. Who, who's getting up on, on Saturday night to go and steal the body? Um, 
Yes, to our atheist friends, good luck. <laughs> what about the appearances? Well, um, <clears throat> he appeared to both believers and at least one very prominent non-believer. Every single one of them became converts. You might say two non-believers, James and Paul. Um, Saul was vehemently anti-Christian. I mean, he was, he was killing Christians, persecuting them. Um, he has an encounter with the risen Jesus and converts on the spot. He's baptized three days later. And James, who, according to the Gospels, didn't have a particular interest in his brother actually being the Messiah, didn't, didn't think that was an all that credible. Even Mary, according to the Gospel writings, didn't seem, despite everything that happened the first Christmas, to really be buying into this idea of the kind of Messiah that her son was claiming to be. Um, so one of the big arguments, you know, say, so, well, he only appeared to people that were, you know, um, obviously already committed, is not true. Secondly, you could argue that you might make up a story of a resurrection if you're going to gain something, right? You're suddenly going to become very important, get a lot of money, get a lot of position. I have, you know, atheists and agnostics level this against pastors all the time. You're only a pastor so you can make money. <laughs> I just, where, well, and if you think about it in the United States, the pastors who make the news, pastors I use loosely, do make a lot of money. But they make a lot of money by not preaching what? They don't actually preach Christianity, which enables them to make a lot of money. So it's kind of a counter argument. It, it's in favor of our argument. Again, uh, in favor of the disciples actually seeing Jesus because they didn't turn out that way. By the way, I was out at the bus stop one time. I was taking the bus home, and this guy, I was dressed like this, and this guy looked me up and down. So, what are you doing here? So, I'm taking the bus home. He says, don't you have a car? I said, well, it's a long story. My car is in the shop, and my wife has the other car. And it's like, I thought all you pastor people were rich. <laughs> um, it's not to say that, you know, we don't have, you know, that we're not doing well, but, you know, I am no Joel Osteen. <laughs> Praise be to God. <laughs> um, the disciples gained nothing tangible from their belief. And in fact, in most cases, lost everything. They lost their families. They lost their health. They spent time in prison. And that was not American prison, where you get three square meals a day and get to watch television occasionally. And they come around with the library books and you have a chaplain. They were, they were tombs, basically. You were chained to the wall, often without being able to lay down fully. And if you were fed, it was because your friends and neighbors risked their lives and incrimination by association by bringing food to the tombs and the prisons. Paul was beheaded for his faith. Peter was crucified. Um, Thomas was speared through the heart. Uh, 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 Andrew was crucified on an X. Bartholomew was flayed alive. They gained nothing by telling people about Jesus' resurrection. Um, so you have to ask yourself, what makes you do this? Unless they actually did see Jesus alive. Well, here's some of the arguments against the appearances. Well, maybe they had visions of Jesus. But in each and almost every case, they're group visions. They're group hallucinations. 500 people at one time. Um, he appears to the 12 disciples in the locked room. He appears to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And none of them say, what did you see? Well, I don't know what I saw. I didn't see that. Well, I thought Jesus had long hair. No, he had short hair. There's never any disagreement among the people who see Jesus that it is, in fact, the Lord. Um, the Gospel of Mary, which is a late Gnostic gospel, does try and make this case that um, these were just hallucinations. And it's one of the ways we know that the Gospel of Mary is a very late gospel. Um, then, of course, there's the spiritual resurrection interpretation. The body did get stolen, but people saw the spirit of Jesus alive. The Gnostic Christians clung to that interpretation because they were descendants of Plato. They didn't like the idea of the body living forever. They wanted to be free from their body so their spirit could go and live in heaven. Um, the Gospel of Thomas is sort of a good example of this Gnostic sort of literature 
that emphasizes the spiritual side of Jesus and not his bodily side. And by the way, the Gospel of Thomas is the Gospel that says, uh, where the disciples say, what about Mary Magdalene? How can she be saved? She's a woman. And Jesus says, you know, any women that I want to save, I can turn into men. It's okay. I, I got it covered. <laughs> and again, this is the Gospel the feminists love. I, I, I don't understand, you know, all these feminists who love the Gospel of Thomas, where basically Jesus is a total misogynist. He's totally the only people that can be saved are men, and so if I want to save the women, I'll have to turn them into men to be saved. But they love the Gospel of Thomas. Why? Because it undermines the crucifixion and resurrection. Um, Luke, as I said before, is written... Uh, talks a lot about Jesus being raised in his body, mostly because it's being written to a people who like the idea of your spirit living on. They do not like the idea of the body. And so Luke has to keep telling us these accounts of Jesus being bodily raised. In Luke 24, Jesus appears to the disciples. They immediately make the jump to saying that he is a... We just talked about this a minute ago. A ghost. And so what does Jesus say? Got any food? Got fish? Got bread? Bring it over here. He eats it. Ghosts don't eat. At least none that you know the paranormal people have found yet. They can only find heat traces and sonic disturbances and things. They've never seen a ghost eat. When they do that, I'll be impressed. Um, a couple other interesting things. I know we're running out of time. Right around the time of Christianity's expansion around the Mediterranean, there is a phenomenal flourishing of novels about people dying and then rising from the dead. Really bizarre. Um, N.T. Wright's one of the few people who's really looked into this. You've got all these novels where the main motif of the novel is people being buried and then being found alive. Collar Hose, one of the great examples, was written between 50 and 100 AD. You, these words might sound similar. This is what we used to call plagiarization. Hurrying in the dark, the tomb robbers had been careless in shutting the tomb. Carius waited for dawn to visit the tomb in order to kill himself because his lover had died and been buried. When he arrived, he discovered that the stones had been moved and not even the corpse was lying there. Then Carius himself decided to go in, eager to see Kalerho, but on searching the tomb, he could find nothing. It turns out, though, that his lover was not dead. She was robbed from the grave and not quite as dead as he thought she was. So even in these novels... They always try and give an explanation for, well, she wasn't really dead. Um, but here's my favorite, favorite example of historical evidence from outside the scriptures that Easter was making an impact on the Roman world. There was an inscription found, dug up archaeologically near Nazareth, where an emperor, and it's presumed to be Claudius, issues an edict warning of penalties for anyone found to be breaking open, breaking open or violating tombs. Why? Why is the emperor over in Rome caring about what's happening in the Middle East and writing an edict saying, no more grave robbing. That's it. I'm putting an end to it right now. Why? Unless... Unless it was changing the world, this message of these crazy Christians going around saying that the tomb of their Lord was empty and that he was, in fact, alive. And it was causing no end of grief, as we heard last week, among the Jewish community in Rome. To the extent that Claudius ends up ejecting the, Romes, the, the, ejecting the Jews out of Rome for all of the controversy going on in their community about this man named the Christ. And he decides to put an end to it by saying, that's it, no more grave robbing. Which means nobody ever found the body. So I conclude with some words from John Updike, which I think are very telling. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. That was a hymn that he wrote for Easter. And what's the point that he's making? This is a historical event. It is the basis on which Paul and all the early apostles were willing to die. That you, in the 21st century, might have a certainty of faith in knowing that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, true historical figure, was indeed crucified under a real Roman governor in Judea, 
and in fact did rise from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And there you have it. Great stuff. So what'd you think? You know, I, I you know, I personally love to get your feedback. If you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, hope that this has been a good resource for you. You can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow. May God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious penal substitutionary death on the cross for your sins. Amen.